0: Good afternoon. This is Carla Samoth, and I'm the author of the recent memoir, One Day on the Gold Line, a memoir and essays published by Black Rose Writing. And I have the pleasure of being in conversation with Chip Jacobs, uh, the writer who recently published or forthcoming, right, Chip? Yep, October 15th. uh, Just about to be hot off the press, Arroyo, a novel being published by Rare Bird Books. And I just recently finished arroyo, and i 'm so excited to be able to talk to Chip about this
1: uh, and likewise, I just uh, you know read your book, and I have three pages of commentary and effusive comments
0: oh my gosh you are you are so far ahead of me. I just read yours, and uh, I usually over prepare, but it's it 's <laughs> fresh in my mind first of all i'm going i 'm going to start out just asking you about. Was this your first foray into fiction?
1: This is my first fiction I've written in my whole life, except for the fiction I used to tell my parents when I was trying to cover up some mischief.
0: Oh, yeah. I love that that fiction. I was so bad at that fiction. Um, (laughs) Really terrible. I don't even want to, yeah, repeat some examples. But I was fascinated by this because I've lived in Pasadena on and off since, I think, 1996, and it, it was really, really interesting to me um, to have the, the combination of history and almost a little bit of a touch of magical realism, American style. Did you, do you see it as that at all?
1: I, I, I do. I see it as a historical novel with humor and some you know magical realism brushed in. Um, you know, actually, as I was crafting it, you know, it's my first attempt at, at fiction after a lifetime as a journalist and nonfiction creative writing. You know, I realized I was leaning too much on the magical realism to support the narrative, and you know, I was using it was becoming a crutch, and so I went and cut back a lot of it. So it's only teased in, but it's not really the uh, galvanizing. Catalysts for my characters, if that makes sense. You know, i I wanted it. I wanted it to be whimsical, and I found, you know, having some, you know, paranormal elements helped it. But it, you know, you you can't. It's like a sugar high. You can't run on that forever.
0: Oh, that's a really yeah. That's a good image. <laughs> I I found it to be like that, and it was just um, paranormal light enough for me to be really you know, to stay in the story, um, and to not be, you know, I I think that it needed to either be like the way it was or way more, and then it would be a whole different book. Um, and there was so much rich history that I I was dying. I actually wanted to know more. It really, um, got me hungry to know more about the history of the Colorado bridge. So a lot of the, the setting is around the construction of the Colorado bridge, um, and then kind of what came after that um, and, and the sort of uh, uh, the murky history of the bridge and, and even um, part of me wanted to bring it up to date to now to sort of know um, uh, what, well, let me, let me go back though a little bit. What first made you really interested in this subject area?
1: Um, well, I grew up, I grew up in Pasadena. Um, I, went to high school at Flintridge Prep in La Canada, mm-hmm. And when we were all sophomores, and it was an all-boys school at this time, um, we were sophomores, all of us got our driver's licenses. And that, of course, this is the late 70s. And, of course, that meant trying to find a spot where the police didn't patrol. We could get away with our shenanigans, and we could you know, be the, you know, benign hooligans that beat inside our test-taking, homework, enslaved selves. And uh, so we used to climb up into the bridge adjacent to the Colorado Street Bridge and look at it. Of course, we, you know, we did call it Suicide Bridge back then, but none of us really understood the history of the Colorado Street Bridge, you know, what? how it was a metaphor for Pasadena, how it changed the landscape of Pasadena the secrecies and deception around it. Anyway, I had a car accident down there. It was my third car accident when I was 16 Mm -hmm. in a few months. And I later, uh, I backed into a friend's car. I later told my dad a big whopper about that accident, blaming a hit and run, not my own drinking and driving. And, um, you know, I, uh, it just put in my mind, you know, questions about this, you know, gigantic, piece of concrete stretching between the two sides of the valley and it just stayed with me. Eventually, um, you know, I became a writer. I, I wrote a freelance story, uh, about the bridge and it just generated a cavalcade of reaction and I never expected it. And I was mm-hmm. people calling me. And then I kind of thought, you know, this has got to be the subject of something. And I, like I did with my smog book, I nervously went onto Amazon and typed in the name Colorado Street Bridge, and there was nothing written about it. And so oh, wow. I felt like it was a song waiting to be composed. So yeah. that that sparked my hunger.
0: And did you see yourself? Did you see any part of yourself in the main character, Nick, and his um, and his dog? Did you? Really, was there? How much of that was? Um, how much of your character was infused into that character? I'm curious.
1: That's an excellent question. I would say a ton a ton, Carla, you know, he, you know, like me is dreamy, distracted, jaded, you know, uh, a mix of contradictions, right. But always moving, wanting to think the best about things, having a little case of denial, you know? And so I would say that, I would say there's a lot of myself and Nick and there's a ton of my current dog in, in Royo, And, Uh you know, uh, I I dedicate the book to him and and the city of Pasadena, but um, there's very close parallels except Nick got to live the life. I wish I had in this progressive age when just life was full and America was improving on itself after the Gilded Age and inventions were flying out of the newspapers and we were turning the corner on the 19th century and, and, you know, just grasping the new one. And it was just beautiful. And so you know, I, I like to transport myself back into Bush Gardens when I'm stressed out in 2019.
0: Yeah, that, I, I got that from the book. There's a, there's a certain joy and exuberance in the whole, in the sight of Nick that's an inventor and um, that just has this curiosity about the world. And he has this wonderful mixture of dreaminess, um, being a, really an intellectual, but also sort of being a man of the people, right? Um, <laughs>
1: Absolutely, um, and he's, you know, um, he, I feel like he's a lot of Ron Kovacs from Born in the Fourth of July. That you know, all uh, you know, the first part of his life, he's a patriot and gung ho, and in his second life, he he's sort of a reluctant dissident and extremely skeptical, and so I felt like you know, using reincarnation, which I fully believe in, you know, that was the way to say when you don't fulfill your mission, you know, as a person of the universe, you got to come back and do it again, but you may not have a head start. So that was really important.
0: Yeah, that, that was a really interesting twist, um, I I think that we had spoken about your book before, and you had told me that it took place during two time periods, and you probably explained how that happened, but what stuck in my mind were were the two time periods, and so the reincarnation part really took me by surprise, Um, and ordinarily, I'm someone where um, it might take me out of the story because I'd be, wait, wait, I don't know if I go for this or not. Yeah. But it really worked for me, um, and in part because I wasn't ready to s- say goodbye to that character. Um, so I was really glad to have that character come back um, later on, and it, it seemed to really it seemed to really fit. Um, it seemed, you know, and then the whole love story too. I wasn't ready for that to end either. So, yeah. um, I'll go yeah, ahead.
1: I know. I, I thank you for saying that, and I'll say, you know, I. I, cont- I contemplated using flashbacks in the second life to reflect back on how Nick died in the first time. And I, you know, when you rely on flashbacks, you know, it's a slippery slope. It is. So I wanted to put Nick on the horns of a dilemma. Tell the truth about what he knew about the bridge to America's foremost muckraker or keep bite his lip, further his ambitions, right? And become the the legend he wants his hometown to embrace. So mm-hmm. I I, I work my butt to make that work. And um, also I must say, you know, having two daughters in their early twenties really influenced me. You know, okay. I I made, I made the Jules character much more complicated and damaged, and yet fiery and independent. Um, you know, she suffers from a trauma, but she was part of this what I call, you know, Nick Chance's celestial reawakening project, you know? And so without her, his bigger story never gets told.
0: Right, right. No, she was a really key part. And I and I thought about, I, you know, I, I can always sort of feel that in fiction. I mean, I may be wrong sometimes, but I can always sort of, having just started to write some fiction myself, like I get that whole part about infusing a character with, not They're not the same character at all. Like, this is not your daughter. But no. there's maybe a certain characteristic, whether, you know, I had a character. I'm, I'm working on some Link short stories now. And I have this one character that has a certain sweetness from a kid that I knew um, who was in a recovery house with my son who relapsed and went, um, went out and um, got into a terrible situation and then was... Um, put on trial for attempted murder when he was defending himself and he was the sweetest kindest kid. And the idea that he would be in prison was horrifying because it just changed who he is. So I took it. I just, all I took, I didn't make the same character at all, but I just took that sweetness and infused it into a new character that I was working on. And it it was kind of cathartic actually. Um, It's such a rich experience. I mean, it's so different for those of us who are, um, primarily nonfiction writers right. or even poets to move to fiction. I think it's really freeing personally.
1: Oh yeah. I, I You know, um, it was, this is the hardest writing I've ever done, harder than any investigative story, feature story, true crime, um, biography, because with fiction, the universe is boundless and limitless. And with nonfiction, you know, you are just artfully moving around a set of facts. And um, so, it definitely takes time, drafts, redrafts. I mean, I burned through so many printer cartridges. I think I'm responsible for polluting, you know, parties. Or- <laughs> uh, so, you know, I did want to have a very damaged female protagonist in the book. And I always find quiet people to be the most fascinating. And so I, I intentionally oh, made her not talk a lot during the day. And that, become a mis- that becomes a mystery we don't learn until the end. Of the book,
0: right, 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 right. Yeah, I love that. Um, was that hard for you to sort of contain yourself in terms of not wanting initially to tell her? You know, I, like I was saying when I sometimes it, it could happen with nonfiction too, but in fiction, sometimes there's a tendency to want to give your whole backstory, you know, to want to put too much into a character, which really can, like, one thing I really liked about your book is the the combination of action and introspection. It was definitely not introspection heavy to where you're like, okay, when is this going to move along? You you did a really good job of letting that come out over time.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, you don't want to spend five pages on backstory and just slow the momentum of the narrative. So, you know, I saved Jules' story for the end, um, but, you know, she's, you know, to, let, to be a human being is to be a hypocrite. And they're both kind of whacking each over the head with their hypocrisy in that last scene when they're together. Um, you know, so, I, you know, the, the key is to make your characters relatable, flawed, and yet you want to root for them. Much like, you know, your stories, I feel like, which I can't wait to talk about. So um, it took me a long time. I, I um, lost some of my focus. Because my dad passed away during the middle of this, mm-hmm. and I had to regain my traction, and so the last three or four months, I almost worked myself into exhaustion uh, mm-hmm. trying to get this right. And I, as I told my publisher, and what you read is obviously an uncorrected galley, but I didn't slave away to get a B. You know, I wanted just to leave everything on the page, you know, without making this a six hundred page book that nobody would read.
0: Right, right, right. I I think you hit that balance. Now, did you? um, How long? So, how long total did this take you? Well, I first thought
1: of the idea in 2011, Carla, (laughs) and then you know other things are going on in my life. You know, I had a true crime book that I needed to get out, and that became a just a rabbit hole of pain, frustration, and despair. Mm -hmm. Getting getting it out. Um, We followed up our um, our book on smog in L.A. with one in China. And in a way, I think I was dodging the blank page of fiction. And uh, finally, I just said, I've got to do it, you know, because th- that book tells so much about what I believe in life, you know. And so I, I-, I needed to matter in that way. And so I did, you know, I-, I did finally marshal my concentration. And so eight years later, we've got the book. And now I understand why people say it takes them 10 years to write a novel. My oh, next, yeah. I'm already working on my next one. It won't be this long of an endeavor. You know, you can lose yourself in research, and I I collected so much research about Pasadena. Fifteen percent of it got in there. You know,
0: I you definitely get the feeling from the book. I mean, somebody reading this is might like, including myself, want to then go and know a whole lot more about the bridge and the history. Because
1: yeah, Pasadena is just chock full of so many compelling personalities, though, and I, I. you know, there's, there's many great books on the city. Some are coffee tables. Some are, some are more, um, you know, uh, focused on a specific area or person or project. Um, but I found a memoir from a pharmacist. Um, oh, wow. you know, and he had sold probably like two books. The guy's been dead for, you know, hundreds of, you know, 100 plus years. <laughs> he, he was telling the story of the real Pasadena, even though he was a homer. And I I just found gem after gem in his story. And some of it I liberalized, and some I kept true. So his name was – it's called Pasadena, California, Historical and Personal by J.W. Wood. And somewhere in the afterlife, I'm going to go thank him for writing that book.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, I just picture this book, you know, if if I were – Someone, if I had someone who was like about to take a trip across the country, and they're like, "I always wanted to go to Pasadena," I'd like read this book, right. you know, in preparation for your for your trip because um, it's so cool, you know, being here and and reading some of the history, but it's not heavy handed at all. It's just enough to get me really curious and interested. So, thank
1: you. You know, I I got interested in this idea that a inanimate an object can um, not be humanized, but it can radiate and throw out, you know, the secrets and lies and deceptions and ambitions of those who created it. And there's a thing called animism, uh, which is its own wormhole into the you know philosophical debate. And so, I believe the bridge is what we make of it, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, there's there's the heroic story of how it was built and then there's the messy story of how it was built. And I, and I always find messy is better than sanitized.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You know, I just want to say that about when you were talking about the messy part and you were talking about characters as well, you know, cause I, I teach creative writing too. Um, and that's the hardest part. It seems like, especially with college students who are really new to fiction is really getting them to, go deeper in their character development, you know, like why a character that has no flaws or complexity is not always that interesting. It's usually not. And I mean, in, unless you're trying to show someone and then later you're going to come along and show me a more multi-dimensional person. And when you dig deeper, but. Um, right.
1: And you always want to, you always want to be asking where's the conflict. And so, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in looking back, I couldn't, I could keep ri- writing this book until the end of time. Like every book and brush in 10 more pages of background about what bush gardens look like and the flowers and how they smelled and the sides of buildings, you know, and, and bringing in all the, you know, sensual elements, sensory elements. Right. I decided, you know what, you just let people extrapolate. And I try to fuse in my setting on first scenes in a new place. So right. but uh, Carl, let me ask you about your, your book, You know, I I noticed, um, again, it's called One Day I'm a Gold Line. Uh, I highly recommend it. I I don't think I've ever read a book like it in the nonfiction world. And one um, reviewer said it it displayed sharp wit and defiant humor. And I I really identified with that. But my, my first question is, why did you do this as a series of essays as opposed to a memoir?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I originally, you know, I had written one of these stories, Heartbeat, many years ago, and an author, uh, Joyce Maynard, had said to me, you know, I don't usually say this, but you should be writing a book-length memoir, not... Just and, and I was sort of horrified at the time. I was a mother of a young child. I was a single mom, you know, writing a bi- I just couldn't see myself writing a whole book at the time. And she said, well, this could be a memoir and essays. And she showed me an example. And it's not an essay collection, but rather um, essays where there's a story arc. And, and you might have noticed that many of my essays read just like chapters. But others are very alternative form, you know, maybe in the form of a list. Um, right or a riff on the book, what to expect when you're expecting of what to expect when you're expecting, uh, when Molly is not a schoolgirl about teenagers and drugs. And, um, and I have really learned over the years, I, I have really grown to like alternative forms and particularly when you're writing anything where, um, trauma and the fragmentation of memory, which comes with trauma is involved because sometimes, you know, and, and I teach this too, you know, you, you don't remember things chronologically, um, and in order to get into that, you have to start um, a, in a different way um, and that kind of um, that i I would have actually you know if i if I had ten more years and this book wasn't so ready to come out, I would have liked to have infused it even more made it even more collage with different forms in terms of the essays. But um, I still intended it to be read as a whole from start to finish rather than, you know, pick and choose the essays, even though they're not all chronological. Um,
1: right. it's as memoir.
0: Chronological. Oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, but it is mostly chronological. And, yeah. um, you know, I think you did, you executed probably what you advise your, your students, which is don't be afraid to be bold with your writing. Take a chance, right? And so when you did lists... When out of order, you know you are being a brave writer, so you know that's that's something that's admirable
0: I appreciate that, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to be bold, especially with memoir, and also to be i know it's it's almost cliches, but to be vulnerable to be to really go there um, because part of what I wanted to really do was to connect with people um, and the shame that people sometimes feel for experiences that they've had. Um, you know, the, the alienation. And so I know that when I was struggling with some things, whether it was pregnancy loss or um, family member who was addicted, um, my son, um, I really wanted to read. It was really important to me to find that connection. And so at a certain point, I was kind of writing the book um, that I wanted to read because I wasn't seeing a lot of families um, that looked exactly like us, um, but it was important to me because I am writing about myself and about other people to really be willing to go as raw or raw, to you know, to start. It's kind of like stand up, right? Start with yourself. You have to really <laughs> be willing to deconstruct yourself and your your own behavior. And, um, and, and, and so, yeah, um,
1: I, I think you did that. And, you know, what I noticed about your writing is that you. You know, you, you are relaying and communicating events within a story and, you know, you, you, you're not an overly flowery writer, but you're also, you, you know, you know how to dot your scenery with fine details, you know, and then, you know, it, and, and you're also not trying to set up a big punchline, but, uh, you know, one of my favorite lines in your book was, I learned what it was like to be a sexy woman who could swing an ax. <laughs> I mean that, that's I mean count you know put me down for thinking that's you know sexy I mean it, but it was such plain language but so well constructed and and I'm a I'm an admirer of sentences like that it's like you know some people antique I look for sentences that just are, are stirring so um, you know uh, that's what I wanted to, you know to say about that you know you you've had so many help up and downs Carla and yet when you when i've saw, when i've seen you uh, when i 've seen you do book talks met with you, you just come off as a very strong woman that's not acting like a victim there's no subliminal martyrdom on you i mean <laughs> it, it, it is true though I mean you said at one point you had i mean you were going to you you had had almost four hundred doctors' appointments or procedures et cetera, and some pretty harrowing <laughs> stuff i mean do you I mean, was that a, was that just part of you at seven, that strength, or was that an accumulated, you know, trait?
0: Mm. You know, I think there was a certain amount of strength that I had as a young person, which you get to at the very end. And I think I was trying to access that over the years. And I remember being told at different times in my life, you're stronger than you think. But many many times saying, no, I'm done. It's too much. It's just too much. And then there turned out to be the bar kept getting raised. Actually, that wasn't too much. There was more to come. Um, You know, there is, you know, a part of the book where I am trying to reaccess this person of when I was maybe like nine or ten, Sammy boy, who was strong and tough. And I recently did a reading in Seattle and I saw my old friends from Seattle and my old fourth grade teacher so fourth grade classmates. And they said they remembered me as being like Aria from Game of Thrones, who's a badass tomboy. I get, um, I get that. <laughs> I was so happy, even though I don't watch Game of Thrones. I had to look up her, who, who the person was.
1: Aria was amazing. But she, she uh, you know, uh, yeah, she, uh, I don't know if you're quite as sadistic as she is. Oh, uh, okay. But, um, uh, um, you know, you don't you don't put this out there a lot, but you know, you're sort of, you know, because we, we want to pigeonhole people. And I have such a problem with going around, slapping labels on human beings, you know, and you call yourself Jewish, biracial, lesbian, but I mean, more than anything, you're just a fascinating, you know, homo sapien. I mean, (laughs) do do you, do you, do you, I mean, how do you feel about the whole slashes thing? I mean, would I mean if you were going to write a one sentence, if you were going to contribute to your obituary, would you would you have those elements in there, or would you go to some other you know description?
0: I think my that's interesting. I think with my obituary, I'd really like. I I've thought about that right. when I'm tor- torturing myself about things. You know, like what do you want to be remembered by? You probably thought about that too, and I kind of when I mean I guess. I really want to be remembered as a good person, you know, as someone that really cared about people and about the way the world works. And so, um, but I think I, I, being a mom is a huge part of who I am and being a writer is a huge part of who I am. Right. And I'd like to think being a social act, uh, change activist, although I don't, you know, I used to make fun of my parents cause I would not make fun, but say, Oh, they're not really radical. They're just liberal. And they were so much more politically active. Right. Uh, than I have been able to be in my time. Um, Although
1: you did call yourself a hippie girl.
0: I was a hippie girl. I was the one walking down the street with the make love, not war sign. (laughs) And, you know, when, yeah, when we were young, in fact, there was a woman at one of my Seattle readings who was older and she said, your parents were part of a group of civil rights activists from the neighborhood. Um, And that was a big part of my early childhood was activism for civil rights and against the Vietnam war and, Know, farm workers rights and that kind of thing
1: that brings me to another point i mean you know you've taken i mean you face some some difficult encounters before we get to the gold line incident story which i just have so much to talk about as a former transportation reporter in <laughs> Pasadena. but you know do, i mean do you feel like you inside you the message that you want to spread you know the, the uh, you know about tolerance and resiliency right and um humor do you feel like we're in a better time in 2019 than we were in 2009 do you feel like between me too and lbgqt you know uh, shows all over tv do you think we're going towards a place where people aren't going to say what you are but who you are
0: Wow, that's a big question. I mean, on one hand, life is so much better. Even in the course of when I was right, you know, the time period that I write my book over, life changes so much for my son as the the son of a queer mom and him being black and Jewish and being part of a blended family or single parent family. Life got so much easier by the time he was in high school to be all those things. But um you know, and then now I'm married to someone who was in the military during Don't Ask, Don't Tell and, and had to leave and then went back in as a reservist in the Coast Guard. And life has changed in that way too. But then if you look at what's going on in the world with our, you know, the person, uh, he who shall not be named, you know, and you look at all the, the, um, the continuing, uh, murder of young black men, you know, police violence, you look at, um, you know, sort of domestic terrorism, you know, white (laughs) supremacists killing people. Then you say like, where are, you know, yes and no, if that makes sense. Um, it feels like people took the gloves off and really said, you know, what they're really thinking. And Me Too is great, but it's just, So we're more aware of what is going on, essentially, you know, not so much that more happened, but we're more aware of that it does happen. Does that make sense?
1: It it does, you know, and I believe, uh, you know, Cheeto in the White House, I I believe he is not the cause. He he is a symptom of democracy, of unreconciled racial, you know, schisms that we still face, Mm -hmm. you know, and... Mm -hmm you know i mean they were still festering there in the south in some bigots hearts in actions people don't talk about because they can hide in the, behind you know behind a keyboard you know and i think if if nothing else he has i mean i'll go back to the colorado street bridge he showed us you know don't believe what you read in history books you know believe what you feel in your heart when you see people acting this way and um you know, I think you brought that up. I mean, some of the things doctors said to you. You know, like people like us faggots the World Cup. I mean, this I of course, you know, that that the World Cup I think was in, in the 90s. Nonetheless, it doesn't seem like that's mod it doesn't seem like that's ancient history.
0: Mm-mm. Um
1: so uh, anyway, no. Uh, you know, you um you know, you. Uh, I, I must say that the most entertaining, one of the most entertaining parts of your uh, book talk at Romans was having your son there in the front of the audience. You know, and you weren't, you know, you weren't embarrassing him, but you were referring to him, and he he seemed like he was, you know, like okay, mom, you know, like everybody with their mom, okay, mom, you know, be do your thing, let's just get on with it. I want to go eat or something like that. <laughs> uh, but you you called him in the book when he was having some health problems, a little prince of constipation. And I was wondering, how did he react when he read that?
0: Well, that's a very nice, that's a very good question. Um, He actually, I don't, well, he has read one of the essays that has a lot about constipation because I had an editor who said, who was going to publish it and said, you know, I really think you should run this by your son and before, And, and he's like, yeah, publish it. You know, it's, you know, Uh, it's a really good um however i gave him a copy of the manuscript when it first got accepted by a publisher and i said please read this let me know if there's parts you you need to have changed you know let, let me know what you think and he said he would and he never did and then um he has a copy of the final and originally he said, he, he, Oh yeah, I'm going to read this. And, and I said, you know, there's some parts that have sexual content that you, you may or may not, that don't involve you, but they involve me that you might want to skip. He was like, Oh no, I'm fine. I'm cool. I can read the whole thing, but that I know he hasn't read it, you know, and, and he said recently that he's not sure when he will, or if he will. Um, and um You know, so I think as far as that day went that he was at the reading, I asked him how he felt about it. And and he said that, um, you know, it was fine. He didn't want to hog the microphone. That's why he didn't go on. Because I was interested. I really wanted to see if he was uncomfortable with having some attention there. Right. Um, And, you know, I don't think he wants to be necessarily part, like, he doesn't want to go on a podcast with me. But he was you know he's been so supportive of the book he's told me to write the book many times i've talked to him many times about um you know are are you sure i waited until he was well into recovery to um to broach you know to keep bringing it up um and he i think he felt as i did that the hope that it would reach people and that people would feel you know Perhaps some more resilience and being able to see that yeah people families go through these things and they survive,
1: yeah, and I also think that's that's well put, and I also think your son should know that he's got a badass mom who was going to such great lengths to get pregnant to pr- bring a human being into the world that could make be an agent of change and and you know uh, show that you know unleash their own individuality so. You know, um, I, you know, I, I'm a guy and uh, I have no idea, you know, just the strength it takes to produce a baby to go through the treatments you did. So, I mean, you know, if nothing else, you know, you should have strong, you know, in your obituary. (laughs) Um, I want to talk to you about, you know, I mean, the Gold Light incident was the one that I just was fascinated by, but I got so deep into your other stories (laughs) <laughs> you know, that became like the last one I read. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of... One thing I think that does make your writing relatable is that you have humor in, in it. And, you know, um, I, life just throws you curveballs of, of absurdity all the time. And here you are after you have a procedure, a DNC, and you're in the elevator with other pregnant women, Right. And, you know, at that point, you must have just thought God had a wicked sense of humor. Am I wrong?
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was kind of terrible, really. Um, You know, I I think a lot of women will tell you when they're going through pregnancy loss or infertility, you you know, suddenly everywhere they look are pregnant women and invitations (laughs) to baby showers. But that particular day, um, it was pretty crazy. And what I really remember, too, is, because it was the day of the Northridge earthquake. Um, I know. Wow. Yeah. That the anesthesiologist, you know, when I asked him, I was just trying to, I don't know why, be polite, you know, and said, how are you doing? he said, terrible. And that was the last thing I heard before he put me out. Um, (laughs) But I'm sure I frightened a few women, pregnant women, when they, they saw me and I burst into tears as I looked at their stomachs.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But still, I mean, you know, uh, understandable. And by the way, my daughter was twelve days old when the Northridge earthquake hit. Oh my and, um, she would she was a terrible sleeper as a child, right? But she slept through that one perfectly, right? Oh,
0: that's so, hilarious. I Maybe she found it sounded comforting, you know, a little rocking. <laughs>
1: at one point it was my, my new wife, myself, my baby, and my dog underneath my parents' dining room table at our house, you know, wondering. And then I was a transportation reporter taking time off under the new family leave law. (laughs) And so uh, I, for the next week just was champing at the bit to go back to work and write on the other hand, I want to support my wife and, you know, so it was, uh, I, you know, um, and then also, you know, we, we don't have to get into this, but I mean, drama seemed to follow you around like a, like a loyal basset hound because the night before your first wedding, you injured your foot very badly. (laughs) And you have to end up going to Huntington Hospital, which is like, you know, this Pasadena 7-Eleven because everybody's always going to Huntington, right? So uh, I found that very moving.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, I I totally recommend Demerol for any uh, bride who's stressed out about... seating no I mean right. in in context, um, l- people listening, I you know burned my foot really badly and and that 's what the doctor gave me so that I could still make it to the wedding and the reception um, right. you were in the but yeah
1: for Huntington e r you had stepped on you had stepped in a humidifier, right yeah and um you know the doctor i mean you're in this terrible pain, and the doctors and nurses are making jokes, hey, show me pictures and you know, you're going to be a Cinderella who can't wear a high heel and, you know, um, it, but I mean, I think because you had a sense of humor and some resiliency in you, you you made it through. So,
0: yeah, yeah, I appreciate like, that. That sense of humor, I think, is what's kept uh, me alive and, and my son and I together over, yeah. over time. And um, but about the hospital. Yeah, I mean, I ended up having a lot more experiences in the hospital, in the ER, and Um, you know, that's why I ended up writing an essay just about being in the hospital because it's almost like I had, I I had PTSD about when I went back later when my mom had dementia and she was hospitalized. I was like, oh yeah, I've spent so much time in this hospital, whether it was losing pregnancies or being there when my son OD'd or, you know, and to the point where I, I, you know, knew some of the people who work there. So I
1: think maybe we need to convince Kevin to pass it in the weekly just to take over an issue and write Huntington Hospital stories, because I have a lot. Uh, oh,
0: that's a great idea. I'm sure he would be receptive.
1: Um, so as we wrap up, I just want to talk to you about your goal line experience. So, uh, you know, first, on behalf of Pasadena, as an American, you know, you, you deserve an apology. You, <laughs> Thank you. You could not find your friggin' ticket And these over militarized, over aggressive, underpaid, grievance, you know, believing uh, sheriff's deputies, um, uh, you know, just to make let readers know you were on the gold line. You were you were coming. Were you coming back from work or leaving for work?
0: No, I was coming back from being um, at court. Um, I I was I was coming back from downtown area.
1: And this is like this is 2008 or nine.
0: Um, I think it it's a blur now. I want to say nine, I believe.
1: So so you, you're on there. There's a route. Uh, deputies are coming through because there have been people using the gold line without having a ticket at the open stations. You couldn't put your hand on the ticket, but you had a receipt for it.
0: Right. They right.
1: aggressively made you leave and, basically, and with really no provocation, just, just slammed you down threw your head into the concrete and, you know, rearranged your face, um, you know, and you, and at one point you, you cried out saying mommy, you know, and I totally get that. You know, that's the most basic thing of a human being in distress, whether it's a soldier or in a car accident, you know, I mean, uh, you know, what, what I took away from this story, which is just searing and powerful is that you know you kept your humanity, even asking for pain medication when nobody in the sheriff's department displayed any? Can you just talk about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd never been on that side of the you know to be to be vulnerable and hospitalized in custody was a really remarkable in a not-so-good way, experience. Um, I had worked for the city attorney's office years ago working on prosecution of domestic violence cases, but I'd never been on that other side. And, yeah, I was in a room... I mean, it was... you, You realize you could be disappeared there. I mean, you're completely there's no, you know, eventually I was told stop yelling for help, you know, because I was in a lot of pain. Like, then I was in a room that was empty, except for a sign that said, you have the right to ask for pain medication. But, you know, one of the nurses came in and said, you need to stop crying or nobody's going to come help you. Um, And, you know, there finally was a doctor who saw me who was fairly humane. But, you know, and I said, you know, can you keep me in the hospital? Like, I don't want to be taken to jail. And he said, no, because here would be worse. You know, there's no phone. There's, you know, even though, one of the officers at one point and said oh you'll be fine once you get to the hospital you'll have a tv and a phone it turns out they were just bullshit you know trying to but um you know i found out a lot afterwards about the problems in the la sheriff's department which as you know became very public not so long after that um in terms of the culture of violence in the jails and you know beating inmates senseless yelling you know stop resisting and then their first stop out of the jails at where they were trained was at the Metro. Um, you know, recently uh, somebody interviewing me said something interesting, which is, you know, um, they also probably perceive the people who are riding public transportation as being less than, um, you know, basically they perceive anyone who, who, as being a potential perpetrator being less than particularly people of color. Um, I look Middle Eastern, um, but, you know, there's many hypotheses, but I think the main thing was that um, this was sort of something going on in the sheriff's uh, LA County Sheriff's Department that I was unaware of before then. Um, but when I went out and talked to civil rights attorneys, it, there were many people that were aware of it.
1: Well, you uh, didn't. You, you weren't rude to them. You weren't resisting them. You, no. weren't, you. I mean, you were hardly you know an exemplar of a rowdy. patron asking for a beatdown. I mean, it it was so surreal.
0: It was very surreal. Yeah, it was was one of those things where you blink and you think you're going to wake up.
1: Right, and you didn't know where the blood was coming from on the station. So let me ask you, did any other fellow passengers, anybody pull out a phone? Was there anybody saying stop? Did anybody come to your aid? Or was it like one of those scenes in New York City where there's a mugging and people are just walking around it.
0: It was a bit like that, but there was somebody who was kind of, who had been pulled off for also for not having a pass and who was kind of watching. um, And um, they, you know, there was a lot that was sort of resurfaced way later that person. Somehow we found out about her way later. Um, Yeah. yeah. Um, But Yeah, I was kind of hoping that someone would, you know, take down, would, uh, you know, but but the most damning thing probably was the video that uh, a sheriff's deputy supervisor came and took of me afterwards um, and showed me in front of this pool of blood. And he interrogated me in a really aggressive way in front of the person who'd broken my nose, um, which is also not supposed to happen. Um, And it turns out that video, which also didn't show up for a while, was probably one of the strongest pieces of evidence against the sheriff's department.
1: Let me ask you, so, I mean, it it was, I mean, talk about your overreaction, and, you know, everybody knows, you know, starting in the 70s, the LAPD, you know, taking up Daryl Gates' mantra became very militarized, and SWAT, and the battering rams, and you know, it wasn't about treating you like an individual. It was like treating you like presumed guilty. How was how this informed the person you are now, the things you're writing, the mother you are? I mean, do you feel like your humanity has been maintained and your skepticism about humanity is not? How are you moving forward?
0: Well, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that there is a certain amount of trauma associated with that experience. But I think that, um, I am able to put it into perspective. I was working on a piece before this happened about things that were starting to happen to my young black son as he got a little older and taller and worries I had about what might happen to him. Right. Um, and so, um, it just kind of added to those fears. Like if this could happen to me, what could happen to him? Um, but, um at the same time, you know, I, I do recognize that, um, you know, there are all kinds of people out in the world. I don't feel hopelessly jaded. You know, I think that is a big part of my book that I'm really hoping that people can read that, yes, really difficult things can happen to a person. Resilience is not like, oh, you bounce up into like a jack-in-the-box and say, oh, now I'm better, you know. Oh. But you can fine you can still feel joy and passion and humor and love and you can still appreciate what is really good in your life um but it's not easy sometimes you know it's it's um and that these things continue to happen um i i think we see a lot in the news still about the la sheriff's department in spite of the fact that the upper folks were taken down um and that there was a federal indictment but we haven't Uh, We haven't seen the end of the problems in the L.A. County Sheriff's Department or in law enforcement across the country.
1: Yeah, there's a you know, there's a lot of angry people uh, in public transportation. When I was at the L.A. Daily News in the 90s, I did stories about violence on the bus system. Mm. It, It wasn't just bus drivers getting beatings. It was bus drivers taking things into their own hands. And there was dozens and dozens of incidents that the union and others kept quiet about bus drivers going on the attack because they felt so aggrieved and endangered themselves. So Carla, so what are you working on next?
0: Oh, I'm working on um, a poetry collection. I'm working on a linked short story collection. um, And I'm writing about another family that is complicated, though it is an intact family with two moms and some adopted children and very multiracial, but very different from my own experience. And I'm writing in the voice of everybody except for the mom so far. I'm kind of tired of my own story. So I'm loving writing, working on fiction.
1: Interesting. That's, that's interesting. You're tired of your own story because, you know, sometimes I get just tired of being Chip. I, I completely appreciate that. Um, so when do you, is that, is that a couple of years down the road? Or oh, when-
0: it's a couple of years down the road. I need some time to just write. I need to get back into that process. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but when you're in the editing and promotion process, that part of your brain that's very creative and generative um, yeah. kind of goes away for a little while. So I need to get back to that.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, I can't stop my brain from, from marrying a new story. So maybe I just need to consider Demerol, but you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, but you don't want to stop it, so keep generating.
1: I, I, I don't. I I just know that uh, if I can't write, I can't live. So, yeah,
0: yeah uh, I totally get that. I, I, I get that.
1: So, well, yeah. re, um, so I, I will just give my hefty endorsement of One Day on the Gold Line. It's very interesting. It takes you out of your own life. You see what a badass woman can do. You see what somebody who wants to bring another uh, life into the world can do. And you can see the humanity of a person who took a brutal beating she didn't deserve and what she did with her life. So, you know, get this book. It's available wherever good books are sold.
0: Thank you so much. And get in there and pre-order Arroyo, which is a brilliant novel of historical fiction. It will take you on a journey um, that has some some surprises that, that will just delight you. And um, anyone who is from Pasadena or going to Pasadena in particular is going to love it.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. Let's whisper to Jeff Bezos ear. So, you know, I hope you learned something, everybody. And we'll talk to you next time.